Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, starting at the very end of chapter 7 with verse 53, going through chapter 8, verse 11. I invite you to read along with me. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, starting with John 7, 53. And I believe that the they in this first sentence means the Pharisees. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Gary Miles, and if you're a visitor here, um, I'm an elder here at Kishwaukee, and I'm filling in for Pastor Eric, who's enjoying some vacation with his family. He will be back uh, next Sunday, continuing his series in Genesis. It's a mini-series in Genesis 1 and 2. Before we get into the text, um, I need to comment briefly on the title of this message. I called it Freedom from the Trappings of Truth. And I'm speaking now, I suppose, generally to the men, although it may apply to everybody at some point or another. Have you ever had one of those moments where your spouse comes to you with a new outfit on and asks something to the effect, does this look okay on me? And as you stand there searching for the right words, you know that even a momentary hesitation is not going to go well. But if you say what's really on your mind, that might not go well either. So do those situations give you an uneasy feeling of being trapped by the truth? Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) Well, I want you to know, this morning's message will offer you no help in that area. Sorry. (laughs) But men, I don't want you to check out, because I have something specific for you, but you're going to have to wait a bit for that. So if I've sufficiently teased that now, let's go ahead and pray before we turn to God's word. Lord God, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, We pray this morning that you open our hearts and minds to what you want to teach us. And I pray especially this will not just be a message for the moment, but a truth by which we are changed and live. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery is a very popular event uh, among novelists, storytellers, 
even Hollywood. And why not? It makes great story with intrigue. It has deceit, suspense, a little mob action. There's mystery. And of course, you can spin this story to, so it turns out, everything turns out wonderful at the end. Which, of course, it does. But perhaps not exactly the way we often hear it. There's one other interesting thing about this story that we need to quickly cover, and that deals with the historical source of this text. So if you have a study Bible, or one that has some scriptural notes in it, you'll notice this section of uh, the text in John has some brackets around it, or it's annotated in some way. And the notes say something to the effect that this section was not in the earliest Greek text that we have. They were included in later copies of the text sometime around the 5th century. Now, we don't have time to delve into the details of understanding the validity of this specific text, but I want to summarize it this way. There are a good many well-respected theologians and biblical scholars throughout history, including up to the present day, that have studied this issue and have confidently concluded that while it may have been inserted in later texts, the accuracy and the validity of the story is completely consistent with Scripture and that is, in fact, a real event from Jesus' ministry. And you will see it. You've, you've read it. You know that. It is likely that the story circulated and was then later added to the Gospel of John. And as we read the story, there are some indirect clues which support its authenticity, which I'll touch on a little bit later. But for this morning, suffice it to say, there's widespread agreement on the historical truth of the events and certainly its consistency with the rest of Scripture. Plus, we trust the integrity of God's word. So with that background and understanding, let's look at the text. The story opens with, Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now we need to remember, leading up to this, Jesus was already preparing to go to Jerusalem. He had been teaching, but knew going to the temple would put him in direct conflict with the Jewish leaders, knowing they were angling to trap him one way or another. Earlier in John, Jesus makes clear that it was not yet his time, and so he delayed going. Nonetheless, he continues his teaching, and crowds are continually following him and listening, something the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as they are referred to, do not really want happening. So this line kind of serves as just a transition into the story. And as the story picks up, we find Jesus right in the middle of the temple court, as the text says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now, imagine the crowd. It says all the people. Now, we don't know how many people there were, but clearly Jesus was the focus of the people and they came to listen. But it also may be they came to see what the leader's response would be, as we'll see in a minute. Imagine further the reaction of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I dare say this could have been a tipping point in their decision to dispense with Jesus, but in reality, that die had been cast already. Let's look back at John 7, and I'm going to be referring a lot to what led up to this in chapter 7. So I want to look at those events. And starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus went around in Galilee, now that was in the north, purposely staying away from Judea, so that's in the south, around Jerusalem, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Then John tells us that the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles begins, but Jesus remained away because, as Jesus says in verse 6, the right time for me has not yet come. But then we read in verse 10, after his, now this is Jesus' brothers, had left for the feast, 
Jesus went also, not publicly, but in secret. And then continuing in verse 11, Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Do you sense the drama starting to unfold here and the trap being laid? Now, catch this. We're still in chapter 7, and I'm skipping into, up to, chapter, to verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? So, the Jewish leaders are waiting for him. Jesus knew they were out to kill him. The people knew they wanted to kill him. It's like the worst-kept secret in all of Judea. Everyone knew the leaders wanted to kill him, and yet Jesus went anyway. And look again at what the people said. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? So there's probably a whole sermon that we could do on that one question. But at least for today, we can say they wanted to know the truth of who this Jesus fellow really was. Scripture tells us that some believed in him and others did not, and that the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering about such things. Considering what was transpiring, there was likely whispering going on, and then there was whispering going on. As in, is that the one they say is the Christ? You can imagine. Well, finally, it tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. But now we find him back in the temple court teaching. So what happened? Well, we'll get back to that in a minute. I want us to sense the unfolding drama that is happening here and the treachery that is underneath what's actually going on on the surface. Can you picture in your mind the scenes of this playing out like a suspenseful Hollywood movie? The Jewish leaders were going to stop Jesus one way or another. They needed a reason, and that reason had to be indisputable, something that would even turn the believers in the crowd against him. So we have all this drama going on. Jesus is supposed to be arrested, and he wasn't. And then here he is in the temple court doing what rabbis do. He's teaching. Now, I want to pick it back up in chapter 8 because the plot's building here. Starting in verse 3, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? The trap was sprung. Now, the text does say it plainly, but even if it didn't, you wouldn't have to let your imagination work too hard to understand that they were using this question as a basis for accusing him. And their ploy was to present Jesus with a no-win situation. He couldn't hardly contradict the law of Moses, as that would put him above the law, something people would not accept, at least not yet. And if he follows the law, clearly death for breaking the law would contradict what Jesus had been proclaiming, you know, in defending the poor and the defenseless, something that would also turn the people against him. So as deceitful as this was, and it's almost so evil it's hard to imagine, the Pharisees were clearly not on their game. Let's look at what is really happening under the pious external veneer of the so-called teachers of the law. First, In order to convict someone of breaking the Jewish law, it required two witnesses of the act. Notice what I said, witnesses. For such a situation, you can scarcely imagine that that sentence was ever carried out. 
I'm sure I don't need to elaborate further why. But yet, here's a specific group claiming just that. It couldn't be anything but a setup. Further, the law they're referring to is from Leviticus 20, it's verse 10. And what the law actually states is that both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Where was the man? Again, clearly, this was a setup by taking advantage of, of a defenseless woman to trap Jesus. Now, I want to pause for a second. Um, the evil and the deceit shown by these leaders is, is really unbelievable. But if the situation was not so tragic, it really would almost be comical. And I want think about it this way. These leaders, these leaders are trying to trap Jesus in the wording of the law. Trap him in the word. Trying to trap Jesus by his word. Recall how John begins the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14 it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, the Pharisees are trying to trap the author of the law in his own law. How do you think that's going to work out? So not to make light of this, but when I look at all the times the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, you know, to dispose of him, it reminds me of this character. <laughs> it's Wiley Coyote, right, trying to catch the roadrunner. Now I realize I'm dating myself here, but growing up on the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour, I'm pretty sure Wiley Coyote never caught the Roadrunner. And no matter how clever the Pharisees appear to be, catching Jesus off guard in his word, probably not a good plan. Today, we call this an attempt at a gotcha moment. I call it using God's word. But you have to ask yourself, was it arrogance or just ignorance? I think about that, and then I think, how often in my own life do I look at Jesus' word and somehow try to use it to my advantage? Or worse yet, turn it back on to God when something doesn't go my way. I hardly can point my finger when I have my own deceit in my heart. So let's move on. What do we make of all this? We'll get to Jesus' response in a minute, but there are no doubt a number of lessons we can draw from this text. I believe, however... There is one key thing being played out in this story that each one of the principal characters are facing, and that is truth, dealing with the truth. And the real question becomes, how is each one of the characters responding? Which, of course, should lead us to consider how we respond in the face of truth. So what I want to do is look at each one of the characters in this story. Okay, I'm going to start with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So the most obvious point here that they're missing is that they're staring right into the face of truth itself and that you're, they're missing who Jesus really is. Why is that? I raised the question earlier, is it arrogance or is it ignorance? And we're probably on safe ground assuming it's a little bit of both, but I want to back up again in the story and revisit something that I skipped over. Recall that the Pharisees sent out the temple guards to arrest Jesus. So I want to pick that back up in chapter 7 and verse 32. And it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. And listen then to what happened. I'm jumping ahead a little bit to verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, 
why didn't you bring him in? Okay, so they sent the guards out to arrest him. They came back empty-handed. And here's the response of the Pharisees. I'm continuing now in verse 46. Um, First, the guards respond. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Now listen to the Pharisees. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or any of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, have we believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. Let the weight of that arrogance sink in a bit. At every turn, people saw something different in Jesus. Those open to wanting to see something different anyway. But not the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. If you keep reading in that section, you'll see Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee himself, so he's one of their own. He enters the picture and he attempts to defend Jesus, and they immediately turn on him. Now, I've noticed a pattern in my work over the past few years. I get more questions from younger engineers regarding how to be successful in their career as an engineer. You know, what things they should be doing and so on. Now, to be clear, I take this as a symptom of me getting older, not not so much me having any wisdom. And like many professions, there are a number of ways and paths to be successful, and of course it depends on what you mean by successful. So it's difficult to paint a picture for any one individual what career success might require. But I have found over the years there is one thing that I find is consistent and something I tell people who will ask. There are lots of ways to be successful, but there's one sure way to fail, and that's to think that you can't be wrong. That whatever it is, at least as an engineer, you have designed or built or analyzed or coded or whatever it is, that it can't be critiqued, it can't be improved. In other words, that you just can't be wrong. That level of arrogance leads down a path that fails not only to see truth, but even to be open to even seeking it. That's what I see going on in the hearts of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're so convinced of their own status, their own world as they defined it, that the ultimate essence of truth is staring them in the face and they are unable to recognize it. Of all the learned people that were supposed to be able to, they missed it. And it led to a web of deceit and lies in trying to bury it, quite literally. Now, it's easy from our view of history to point the finger again at their arrogance and and their ignorance. And yet, how often do we miss the truth, right? How often do I miss the truth? How often do I go about in my own ignorance and my self-righteous arrogance? Well, let's move on in the story. So I want to look at the woman's and Jesus' interaction. I know this is a familiar story. And I know you've heard it a lot. But let's look again at what the text says. The trap has been laid, the accusation made. Now, does, how does Jesus then respond? So I'm going to start here in the middle of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now stop there. I want to clarify this. Note the text doesn't say what Jesus wrote. There have been many creative, even imaginative, ideas put forth concerning what Jesus may have written, but the fact is the text simply doesn't say. And I'm kind of glad, actually, because I look at this part of the account, and it really has no bearing on the story. 
Some people want it to, but it really doesn't. I mentioned earlier there were points in the story that attest to its authenticity. I read this as one of those points. The only reason I believe that this is in there is because that's what happened. And it's simply being transmitted by eyewitness accounts. It adds nothing to the story. And more than that, if someone wanted to fabricate a story like this, why would they add such a detail but never explain what it was about or why? Okay, but here now is the crux on which this story turns. Continuing in verse 7 here. When they, that's the Pharisees, kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. This is obviously the most quoted verse regarding this story, right? But that's it. It's one simple response. And Jesus turns that whole situation, 180 degrees, putting the Pharisees back on their heels, Imagine how they suddenly are reeling, looking at each other, trying to figure a new strategy, concerning that they're concerned that their best laid plans are about to collapse right in front of them. Of course, as the story concludes, the mob disperses, no one is left, Jesus straightens up again, and in verse 10, he asks the woman this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Why did he pose that question? Jesus asks a simple question for which the answer is as obvious as can be. Clearly, no one cast even a single stone. Nobody said anything. No one was even left. So why ask such such a self-evident question? It's not like Jesus was wondering what just transpired, right? He he wasn't trying to figure out what's going on here. So what was he trying to do by posing such a question to her? A good teacher, you may notice, often poses questions rather than make statements. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Of course, we know Jesus is clearly more than a teacher. But by asking this question, Jesus gave the woman space to recognize that no one has condemned her. It's as if she's the defendant in a courtroom, and in the middle of the trial, the prosecutor, all the witnesses, and the jury suddenly get up and leave. There's no one left to accuse, condemn, and convict her. She's free despite the truth of her actions. The reality is we may all feel condemned by all sorts of people, by the evil one, even by ourselves. But in fact, there is only one righteous judge, and that's Jesus Christ. And the woman now came face to face with that reality that Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's only then that the woman finally speaks. She says in verse 11, No one, sir. That is a powerful reminder. As Christians, we need to remember we too are not condemned, but in fact, we're free. And even more powerful is Jesus' response. The story ends as Jesus releases her with these beautiful, but less quoted, words. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I find the woman in this story very interesting. She utters three words. That's it. There's no denial. There's no claim of entrapment. There's no plea for mercy. 
no lies, nothing. She was guilty, and she knew it. Now, we don't know if she knew Jesus or not, but it's likely, given all that was going on, she did. And here she is, before the author of truth, humbly accepting the truth of her sin without so much as even a defense, despite the circumstances. I find her response interesting because it really points to me to a paradox. She, in fact, is freed by accepting the truth, the very truth, of course, that would condemn her. Her sin, our sin, is the very thing that traps and enslaves us. Now, despite how the world defines freedom, it isn't freedom to do what you want. It is, in fact, enslavement, and that's due to the results of our own sin. And yet, we see in her acceptance of the truth of that sin that she finds true freedom. Just a few verses later in this chapter, we read about Jesus making the same argument. This is in from verse 32. He says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Continue on in verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, I know our society, particularly today, will denounce any claim of truth, apart from maybe, you know, what individually we want to declare as our own truth. And I could do a whole sermon series, I imagine, on this idea of quote-unquote truth. But we don't have time to dig into that today. I would like to, however, remind us of Pilate's response as Jesus stood before him, himself accused and sentenced to death. Chapter 18 of John records this exchange with Pilate, and Jesus answering Pilate and says, I come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate responds, what is truth? Now, don't hear that is a question from someone seeking the truth as in, oh, well, what is the truth? That's not it. Pilate's response is not a question. It's a cynical dismissal of any acknowledgement of truth at all, as in, what is truth? Things have not changed so much, really, have they? And our challenge remains, are we willing to fully accept the truth and be set free? Okay, so we looked at failing to recognize the truth and the freedom in the truth. Finally, I want to look at the key to all of this. I mentioned this is where the story turns, and it does because a key point I want us to recognize is this. We are the woman. She represents me. She represents you. She is each and every one of us. And this tiny part of the story is the gospel in a nutshell. The story in the end is not about a woman caught in adultery. Well, of course it it is, but it really represents every sin and the freedom available to every one of us in the gospel. I know the plotting and deceit of the Pharisees in the story is intriguing and it makes for a great narrative. But looking at this another way, the Pharisees also represent the accuser, the evil one, the deceiver, the one who attempts to judge and accuse us of our sin before God. Think of Job. We all stand in judgment before the throne of Jesus Christ, condemned by the truth of our lives, 
the truth of our sin. And in truth, what can we do but remain silent, accepting our sin, and falling on the mercy of the one who had no sin, who took our sin upon him, paying that price, the one we deserve, so that we would no longer be trapped by the truth of our lives, but free. Let me say that again. We are no longer trapped by the truth of our lives, but we are free. That is grace and truth. Look again at Jesus' response. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. How could he do that? He knows the truth of her life. He knows the truth of all our lives. Well, the answer is because God sees us better than we see ourselves. By that I mean <clears throat> seeing us as we truly are. But not only as we are, he simultaneously sees us better than we are, as he sees Jesus, a child of his. God saw in the woman both who she is and who she is in Jesus. And he extended grace and mercy upon her, setting her free from the truth by the truth. And he does the same for you and for me as believers who trust in Jesus and place our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. Don't miss this point. If you don't remember anything else from this message, get this point. In God's grace and his mercy, he sees who you are through Jesus Christ. And it's that very grace through which he frees us from the trappings of the truth of our sin. Now, don't hear from this the idea that Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes as cheap grace. Okay? We are not set free to continue to sin. That's cheap grace. Notice in Jesus' response, he says, first, then neither do I condemn you. It's then, it's then that he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Notice Jesus doesn't say, woman, go and clean up your act, and when you are free of sin, come and see me, and we'll see about clearing that condemnation thing. No. Christ has freed us first. He has already freed us, and he's freed us to leave our sin behind. Now, Will we be perfect? Of course not. As we seek Christ each day, that truth becomes more and more clear. But even as we continue to struggle with the sin in our lives, I want to encourage you, know that God, through his spirit, is changing us. He's conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is the truth of the gospel. I want to close with a brief look at <clears throat> one other character in this story. I was helped with this uh, insight by a pastor and an author named Jim Callis. It's from a book that he wrote called Men Worth Knowing. And he takes a look at different men of the Bible, some of the usual suspects, but also lesser known men. And he offers, what I'd say, a unique perspective on their lives. Perhaps you could say a common man's view of them. Now, I'm telling you this because this fall, we are launching a men's connection group. And this is one of the resources we'll be using. So this is the part I mentioned in the beginning specifically for you men. So I'm asking you just to watch for details to come on this and seriously consider engaging in this group. So that's my shameless plug for this men's connection group. But honestly, it is my hope that through this group, more of us will grow to be more like this character. We barely mentioned him in the story. What about this character we skipped over? I'm going to call him... <coughs> And I'm 
obscure, excuse me, an obscure hero. He has no name. He's not recognized in any specific way. He says nothing, or at least nothing recorded. In effect, he's been lost to the obscurity of history, except for this tiny cameo in the Bible. You see, he too responded in the face of truth. Look again at, verse, at the text in verse 9. It says this, At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I wonder who that first person was. Who was the first person that made that decision to go against the mob and walk away? I wonder what was going through his mind. Remember, he was part of the group that was ready and willing to stone the defenseless woman. Why didn't he or someone argue the obvious? We're not talking about our sin. We're talking about hers. You can imagine how that might play out, but it didn't. I wonder about the courage and character of this man. He had to accept the truth of his own sinfulness on full display to the crowd. And more to the point, I wonder if I would have had the courage to be the first, to accept the truth of my own sinfulness, and to show compassion and grace in the face of that truth. I wonder. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us. And I thank you especially, Lord, that you sent your son full of grace and truth to take upon our sin. I pray this morning that uh, this message will resonate with us and that we will go forth and we will be like the one obscure hero recognize the truth of our sin and that we will treat others and the world with grace and truth. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.